number of years ago, the church that we were attending started talking about doing a church plant. And it led to a lot of conversations about how and why we do church. Kind of in that context, Lou and I started thinking about, you know, what are we actually doing as a church? Are we just creating a really cool environment to hang out with our friends? Um, is there more than just ministering to people that we already think kind of the same as in our, in our circles? And we had a great church life. There really wasn't anything wrong with it. But thoughts really started circulating around of, is this really all there is? Or is there something more that we could be doing? One of the things we started to talk about was what would happen if we stepped outside of the traditional church model? What would it look like if we were able to create a space where people could just come and hang out, where it wouldn't be so formatted, where it wouldn't have an agenda, where it wouldn't be completely structured to be geared towards just teaching, and maybe a little bit more focused on relationships and a little bit more focused on just doing life with each other in a bit more natural setting, in a bit more casual way. And it sparked some really interesting conversations around it. So at the time I was reading a book by Hugh Halter called The Tangible Kingdom. Basically what the book is talking about is getting to know your neighbors, getting to know your coworkers, um, interacting more with people that are already in your life. And he talked about, you know, just crossing your yard and knocking your neighbor's door and introduce yourself and say, hey, you know, we've lived beside each other for 10 years and all we've ever done is wave across the fence. Why don't you come over and, you know, let's have dinner together or grab a coffee or a drink or whatever and just get to know the people in your neighborhood. Something about what he was talking about in the book really resonated with us. So over the next couple of years, what ended up happening is we actually gave up all of our church commitments. Um, we cleaned up the big garage in the back of our place. We cleaned up the house a little bit and we invited a whole bunch of people over and we had a party. And then we had another one and another. One of the things it led to was one New Year's, we were out visiting Lou's family out in Saskatchewan and we came home that night on New Year's Eve and we knew this before we left, but due to a communication error with my brother, he had invited a ton of people to our house for a New Year's party. So by the time we got home, there was about 50 people hanging around our house in the garage. The band was in full swing, everybody's having a great time. Most people didn't realize that the people who actually owned the house weren't even there. So when we came home about 10 o'clock, um, and Ewell took the microphone and said, hey, you know, Kurt and Lou are here, let's give them a big welcome. They actually own this place. We got a big cheer, I looked around and I went, probably a quarter of the people here I don't think I've ever met before. And it was just kind of a really neat feeling walking into that. So over the last couple of years, we embarked on a few changes to kind of develop this a little bit farther. Um, we've actually done a huge renovation on the house. We live in a little small house. It used to be a farmhouse for the apple orchard in this area. Little one bedroom place. So what we ended up doing was we knocked down the main wall running through the center of the house to create like a huge open space on the main floor. We're in the process right now of building a big deck out the back of redoing the backyard, putting in some cool landscape features and stuff. The big shop out back, we're gonna clean it up and turn it into a bit more of a party room. And then we're gonna share it with other people. So the whole purpose of what we're doing here is just to provide people a safe space, someplace they can come and hang out. It's an alternative to the bar scene. It's an alternative to the traditional church scene. Um, there's a lot of spontaneous conversations that break out about life, about God, about all kinds of stuff but it all just happens in the natural ebb and flow of people just having a good time together and, and letting their guard down and just able to chill out a little bit. So what we do isn't for everyone. It's a pretty different way of being. 
What it's meant for us is losing a bit of the safety of the typical church gatherings. It's meant getting into a lot of situations that we probably would have never gone into before and learning how to be comfortable just with a lot of people that aren't like us. Some of the things that we've done, we've had a lot of people over at the house here. We've also made a commitment to attend events that people we meet at our events, stuff that they plan. And uh, so we go to a lot of parties is really what it looks like on the outside. But what we've done is we've built some really, really interesting relationships over the course of time. Some of the stuff we've done, it means spending a lot of time shopping. It means spending a lot of time cleaning up after 50 people have been in and out of your house. But I can't really ever imagine going back to just the regular church setting again. Um, I love the services, I love all of that stuff, but there's just something about just being with people and being real with people that really has stuck. And uh, it just feels right for everything that we do. So yeah, that's kind of how we live our life and this is our home. So welcome back to thinking about the art of being basic, rediscovering some of the foundations of our faith. One of the foundations we want to talk about this week is hospitality. It has been one of the singular flavors of Christianity, no matter the area, no matter the way um, it has been embodied, that sense and that call to hospitality has been a defining characteristic. But often when we think about hospitality, we think about what we can give and it becomes a one-sided affair. Hospitality becomes measured by extending self and resources, leaving a little space to receive because we internalize a frenetic drive to earn our place. When we talk about the art of being basic alongside this foundational principle of hospitality, it can add divine urgency to the frenetic drive, pushing us towards more, do more, allow only things to flow from us, and create this sense that we always have to be giving, doing, almost hyperactive. And that can create a problem when we realize that throughout history and just for humanity, community is participatory. So is hospitality, the way that we can be involved. But this one-sided funneling effect is exaggerated and perfectly exemplified in social media. A make-believe land of endless output showing people how woke, right, intelligent, moral, patriotic, and active we are, completely devoid of human relationship. An exhausted realm of speaking without listening, of defining who the neighbor is who thinks like us so that we can dismiss and silence those who do not. And that sets us up for the perfect tension of Luke 10, where the story of the compassionate Samaritan is set in the middle of such a debate, a debate over what are the limits of defining us? It says that an expert of the law looked to Jesus and said, what must I do in order to inherit life in the age to come? And Jesus asked him, well, how do you read it? And he said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, of course. And Jesus said, that's a great answer. Do this and you'll live. But wanting to justify himself, because like our social media posts, sometimes we don't do it to share information. We're trying to do a self-justification. He said, yes, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? Then Jesus turned and began to tell a story. He said, there once was a man coming down from Jerusalem 
and he fell amongst revolutionaries who beat him, stripped him, and left for dead on the side of the road. And then it just so happened that a priest was coming down the road as well. Seeing the man abused and hurt on the side of the road, he stepped to the other side because he was scared of the revolutionaries. And then a Levite came down the same road. And again, seeing the man battered and bruised and bleeding on the road, it says he stepped across the path again to avoid him, fearful for the revolutionaries. And it just so happened that a Samaritan in his travels saw the wounded Jewish man laying in the ditch on the side of the road and was moved by compassion, went over to him, dressed his wounds, put him on his own animal, and took him on a journey to an inn. At that inn, he started to nurse him back to health, and then he went to the innkeeper and said, this should cover the expenses, and on my way back, I will pay you whatever else is lacking in what it takes for you to bring him back to life, bring him back to health. And Jesus turns and looks to the expert in the law, says, so, which of these three do you consider to have become a neighbor to the one who was fell upon by revolutionaries? And the expert of the law took a moment, said, the one who showed mercy. So now, his question in the beginning, the what must I do? is driven by that frenetic drive, the endless doing and defining against that would animate his worldview to say that I must know how far this energy has to go, how much I have to do. And before we come to mind that says, well, he's asking about heaven, so he's not asking about this life. It wasn't about the life after death for Jesus though, but it was about the life in the age of the Messiah, the age of Jesus. It was about anticipating the moment that Jesus would set all things to right. So when the expert of the law asked him, it was driven by a compulsive need to do because he thought he was earning his place in the kingdom that would come rising out of Jerusalem and having power again. So for the legal expert, how do I anticipate the new age where Israel is restored? Isn't about how I go to heaven, but how do I enter into the good grace of the Messiah when he is king? So that when we have power again and our empire is back on top, I can have position. What must I do becomes an invitation to benevolent colonization, embracing a utilitarian rather than a participatory use of life. People have value to the degree that they conform, obey, or agree. Jerusalem, thus the legal expert, had use for Samaria, but not room for the Samaritans. They had use for the people, but no room for their reading of Torah. They had use for them as objects, but never as subjects who add value to the whole. As benevolent colonizers, they would move into the neighborhood to expand their territories, not to experience the community. To conform rather than celebrate, to bring God rather than discover a God who is already present. Even when the people read the same sacred text, and prayed to the same God of Abraham. So what must I do created multiple objects for him to act upon, multiple ways to give, but denies agency to the other, delimits how much they can affect him, and forces any subject to mirror who he is. It strips difference and different experience. It follows statements that we'd say today, like they can be part of the congregation, but they can have no place in leadership. They can be part of the consumers, 
but never a creator. They can join the followers as long as they do not make us aware of the way that life treats them different, that we experience life different. They can belong as long as they are silent and unseen. But the benevolent colonizer's forcefulness is always well-intentioned. I mean, it's for their own good anyways. They were heretics. They were the wrong kind of people in the land. And the benevolence shaped the relationship between Samaria and Jerusalem since the first almost messianic age. Because going about a century before these times, the first revolt of 167 to 60 earned Jerusalem's freedom. They asked then, what must we do to inherit the whole land? 30 years pass. Then in 129 BCE, Jerusalem liberates Syria or Samaria by raising their city and destroying their temple, a temple which read from the Torah, a people who traced their lineage to Jacob. What must I do meant that the practice of hospitality must first be qualified by saying, what does it mean to be the neighbor so that I can judge whether you can participate as a person or need to be acted upon as someone to convert or object. And this brings me back to social media. Because see, recently when I was going through Instagram, I actually saw a story of creating space and room for participation through the grace and a cup of salt. A woman told a story, she said when she was a child that her mother would send her often to her neighbor and said, we go get a cup of salt for me. And she said, after about the fourth time, she looked at her mom and said, why do you keep sending me for salt? They come to us for things all the time. We don't need it. She said, because they have need and they often do come to us. But if I never ask for anything in return, if I never receive from them, they won't see themselves as being with us, as being a neighbor. They're going to be our charity and become too embarrassed to ask when the need is real. She said, so when we ask for the salt to receive, she said, they're giving us something that doesn't cost them very much, but allows them to know that we see them as part of us, that they have something to give and to offer us. And so the act of receiving created room for the neighbor to participate in the household that often gave to them, to be valued rather than sorted, to be celebrated rather than a charity. And this is why Jesus ends the compassionate Samaritan with a question. Which of these three do you consider to be a neighbor? Jesus asked the expert to identify a neighbor by identifying with the one who needed hospitality. He said that you must first try to think from the vantage point of the one who was attacked by revolutionaries, the ones who thought Jerusalem would rise in power again and was willing to sacrifice others for it. And he said, if you can see from the ditch first that you realize your need to receive grace from those you consider graceless in order to be ready to actually enter into life in the age to come. But it started with his identification with those in the ditch, not with those in power, not with those coming down the road as the Levite and the priest, not even trying to see himself in the revolutionary who ransacked. But he said, can you see yourself as the one in need who has to be shown grace, hospitality, and love first. And only after the expert looked up from the ditch, after he recognized who neighbored him, the one who showed him compassion, could he receive the command, go and do likewise. 
go and recognize the neighbor through seeing their compassionate response and thereby creating room for hospitality by first receiving their very human gift and honoring it. Go become the neighbor by becoming compassionately hospitable to those your tribe, your political party, your group would say couldn't read sacred text, would defile the community by being a part of it and deny God. Because it'll be there that you will experience what it means to embody the age of the Messiah. Our ability to create space for those who we'd, we'd never allow to actually be value-added contributors, that we receive their hospitality and grace, their mercy, that we'll be able to say, I am ready to inherit the world the Messiah wants to offer. So I wanna say, may we become a people who anticipate Jesus by identifying with the one in the ditch first, the one who recognizes their need to receive love, compassion, and to experience hospitality so that we learn how to see and be affected by the gift of the Samaritan with us before we try to go and do likewise. <laughs>